Hey everybody, welcome to the Traparaca 101 podcast by Pirates and Poets. I am your host, John Burns, JB, some people call me. Appreciate you joining us today. I am uh, excited to share this week's episode with you. Uh, my guest is Bob Carwin, the 2016 TRMA Entertainer of the Year and uh, renowned celebrity in the trap rock community, uh, both, both as a uh, musician and a songwriter and as a bit of a personality. Uh, I have known Bob for a long, long time. Uh, Damon Earl and I first got to know Bob back in 2007, 2008. Uh, we were involved in a charity event called Angels and Tropical Shirts, and uh, we reached out to Bob in 2007 to see if he wanted to be a part of a, a compilation CD we put together to uh, help support that event, and he agreed. The next year, Bob, uh, Bob is based out of San Diego. The next year, Bob came to Texas and Louisiana to play the event for free, out of his own pocket, the Angels and Tropical Shirts event. Um, so that cemented a friendship that has uh, lasted a really long time. It's always fun when I get to talk to him. We cover a lot of ground in this interview. Um, talk about Bob's 2016 campaign for TRMA Entertainer of the Year. We talk about his new album, uh, The Miles Between, that he recorded with Donnie Brewer. Uh, we also get into kind of West Coast trap rock. Um, we discussed you know, the fact that trap rock is a little bit different in different regions of the country, especially 15, 20 years ago when uh, the Internet uh, wasn't as great and it uh, wasn't as easy to discover artists from other parts of the country uh, unless you saw them in person. We talk about Fins to the West, which is a very important event uh, for the Parrothead Clubs and trap rock fans out on the West Coast. Talk about DJ Jeff Allen and uh, lots of other fun stuff. So I uh, hope you enjoy this. I think it's really informative. Bob, uh, he, he kind of geeks out on a lot of radio stuff. Um, so I, I think everyone will enjoy it. I hope Eric Babin uh, listens to this especially because I think EB will enjoy some of the radio history stuff on here. So I just want to thank everybody for checking out Trap Rock 101. Uh, please tell your friends about it. Uh, we are now available to listen to us on Spotify. And uh, we're working on getting on iTunes and some other platforms. So uh, please share the, uh, this episode and all the past episodes if you enjoy it. Uh, have lots of fun people in store for future interviews. But for now, please uh, enjoy. Actually, I should say this um, just for context sake for people who may hear this way off in the future. This interview was recorded in July, mid-July 2020. Uh, so if you hear us talk about covid and some things like that that gives you a little bit of context so uh here we go please enjoy my interview with the one and only bob carwin so growing up in boston in the 80s it's a it was a weird time because it was the the late 80s and jimmy buffett was kind of on his way down in his career you know in 1990 91 92 jimmy buffett couldn't get arrested at one of his own shows but the weird thing was in Massachusetts, we had a place called Cape Cod, which is if you look at Massachusetts, it's that elephant trunk that sticks out at the end of the state out into the ocean. And there were guys all over the place in Cape Cod who would play acoustic guitar. And it was before we had drum tracks and any of that stuff. And they would play to college students and it would be hundreds of them. There was a place called Puffer Bellies in, I think it was Falmouth, Falmouth, Massachusetts. And they had this giant stage, like Meatloaf played on this stage. <laughs> and my buddy Chris Wales would stand up there with just an acoustic guitar and a microphone. No tracks, no band, no nothing. In a Hawaiian shirt. 
and play. And they had like this big sand volleyball court and there would just be people everywhere. And he'd be playing all of the, all of the songs, you know, by heart, along with all the other sing-alongy kind of stuff. And this was before all that stuff got super cliche. It's when these songs were popular, like Sweet Caroline and all that stuff was, was kind of growing right then. And that was, I used to work in a lot of those places where these guys played at the time. It was before I really got into playing. And I would stand there, I was the doorman, and I'd be collecting money and checking IDs and watching these guys play. And I'd have a notebook out there, and I'd write down all the songs that these guys would play. And I'd go home with my guitar, and I'd start learning these songs. And and back then, you'd have to figure it out for yourself because it was you know, 1988, you didn't have the internet to just be able to pull up song lyrics and chords and stuff. So I'd be sitting down and I'd write the whole set list down and there was just tons of Jimmy Buffett stuff. And that got me into that. This guy used to live in uh, Bourne, Massachusetts in this big beach house. And we'd go down and, and he, he had this private beach. We'd go out in his boat, listen to Buffett. And that was where I first got exposed to it. I mean, this guy was, this guy named Chris Wales. He was Jimmy Buffett as far as I was concerned in my life, he was the closest I've ever gotten to meeting actual Jimmy Buffett live. And so that kind of morphed into me playing the songs and learning a little bit more about it. And I also had an uncle who uh, was a huge parrot head before parrot heads were cool. Um, and he had a whole collection of Buffett songs and I moved to San Diego from Boston and he had a whole collection there and we'd sit in his house and drink beers and listen to Buffett songs. And that's how it all started. Uh, for me, that's where I first got into, that's when my first exposure to hearing Jimmy Buffett music and learning what it was. From there, I wanted to be one of these guys. So I grabbed my guitar and I said, man, these guys are living the Jimmy Buffett lifestyle that's in these songs. So I started playing it. And the very first exposure I had to it was um, there was an event called Migration happening in Long Beach, California. It might have been the first or second year they ever did it. And I found some listing for it online. And it was like two weeks before the event. And so it was too tight. They'd already booked it. Jerry Gontang was playing. They're all the, the, the Southern California guys were playing. This is back when Jerry was in a band called Coco Loco. I mean, this was a long time ago. But I, I contacted the the people who were running the thing, Jim Hill, Mike McLean, all these guys. And I said, hey, I want in, I want in, I want in. And they hadn't heard of me and it was too late. But they came out to see me play at a place called the Burbank Bar and Grill. And I, I showed up to play one night like I was playing three nights a week. And one night I, I looked over and there's a table full of 50-year-old people in Hawaiian shirts. And... <laughs> I happened to play a bunch of Jimmy Buffett songs along with some of my stuff and other sing-along kind of stuff. And they went, Bob Carwin, you're our guy. And after that, they kind of took me in to the LA Parrot Head Club. And I've been rolling with that ever since. So migration, uh, what time frame are we talking about here? Do you remember that? Well, let's see. Yeah, that had to be 1998, maybe. 98, 99, something like that. Gotcha. So you were you kind of learned about Buffett while you were still on the East Coast, Boston area, but your connection to the the club and and the the music really came after you moved out to the West Coast. Yeah, absolutely. Well, when I was living on the East Coast, you know, Buffett's got a big connection to Massachusetts. Anyway, he's got um, he, he had he would always fly into Martha's Vineyard and on the Cape Cod and that kind of thing. So there was actually in Massachusetts was a really big 
parrot head contingency, but there were no parrot head clubs at the time. I don't know when Scott Nickerson started the first one. I don't know if that was 1990. It was, it was very close before that. And I came out to California and so I'd never even heard of it before then. I, I knew parrot heads, but the actual clubs weren't a thing. And when I moved out there, the Los Angeles Parrot Head Club was the first exposure or, or meeting that I had with it. And like I said, they took me in and through them, I got to know all the other people around the country. Cool. So when did you release your first album? Jeez, that would have to be probably something like 2000. It was a long time ago. I mean, I remember I was one of those guys who was, I was burning the CDs at home. So I recorded, <laughs> I had one got one buddy of mine who I met in kind of the Los Angeles music circuit who had a setup to record. So we'd go to his house and we recorded all the songs and he helped me produce it and do all that kind of stuff. And then I would bring it home, put it on my computer and I was burning the discs myself and I was printing off all the liner notes myself and I was buying empty jewel cases and slapping those bad boys together. And the first cover that I ever had, uh, this, the album was called A Little Something for Everyone and the cover was shot in black and white because I was thinking how expensive it would be to print color ink on, la- on labels and the uh, the inserts for all of those CDs. I was thinking just black and white, that's a lot cheaper. That's why the first CDs in black and white. And so that was probably right around then. So it's kind of funny. So my first, my first intro into the Parrothead music world on my own as Bob Carwin, as opposed to Parrothead sing-along guy, I wrote a song called California Sunshine, which was on my very first album. And I wrote, it's one of the first songs I wrote when I moved to California. I actually sat there on the beach in Pacific Beach and wrote that song sitting in the sand. And it really kind of encompassed that feeling of moving from Boston to California going, oh, there it is. I guess I guess I now get it. And so I wrote the song and it was right when they started Radio Margaritaville. So right then, all they had was all of this Jimmy Buffett live album back catalog because he didn't want to play any of his records, his recorded on Radio Margaritaville, because he didn't own any of the masters. So if he played any of his own records, he was going to have to pay royalties to MCA to play his own songs, (laughs) which is why they only played live music from the start. So he owned all the songs, but he didn't own any of the master recordings. There was actually a time, I I found out, there was actually a time when he was going to go back and re-record his first five albums, all of the songs, all of the music, just so he didn't have to pay royalties to MCA to play them. And they talked him out of it, but they had that they had, they had like two Sonny Jim albums and a Jim Morris album. That's all they had for music. So I sent in my song and Steve Huntington went, Hey, that Bob Carvin song, California sunshine, we're going to play that. I was like, what are you kidding me? And so, uh, yeah, he sent me an email, let me know he was going to play it. And I was like, cool. Yeah, we're going to play it on this date at 5.15 a.m. <laughs> and that was, they were based in Orlando at the time. So I stayed up and I was listening to my computer. I was on the West Coast. It was 2.15 a.m. on the West Coast. And I listened to it. And um, Steve Huntington comes on after a commercial break and he goes, okay, now the world premiere of Bob Carwin's California Sunshine right here at Radio Margaritaville. And he played my song. And then he went into a whole set of songs that were based on California themes, songs with California in the title. There was um, 
California Promises by Jimmy Buffett, California by uh, Joni Mitchell. He, so he played all these songs. He played right after me. He played a Crosby, Sills and Nash song, then a Joni Mitchell song, then a James Taylor song, and then Jimmy Buffett, California Promises. And he came out of the break, and I'll never forget it as long as I live. He came out of the break, and Steve Huntington said, you just heard Jimmy Buffett, James Taylor, Joni Mitchell, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, and Bob Carwin. <laughs> and it's been all downhill ever since. <laughs> he hasn't said my name on the radio since then. That's pretty cool, though. You know, to have it was cool. It was really cool. I mean, it was, it was one of those moments that you go, you, when, you're, when you're going through a long period of time, it's one of those things that sticks in your head forever. Yeah, I wish I had known about Radio Margaritaville a few years before. By the time I started listening to it, it was uh, it was right when they were switching to Sirius, you know. And but uh, I hear right. all these stories about when when they played all of our independent people a whole lot more than they do nowadays. And I, I would have probably known about guys like you or or uh, you know Brent Burns, Jerry Diaz a lot sooner if if I had listened. But I didn't know better back then. I don't know. I was you know probably twenty. Or well, there so. was a station bef- before Margaritaville joined. So what happened was. Before Radio Margaritaville became part of Sirius XM, it was just XM at the time, I think, they had a station on there called Permanent Vacation Radio. And one of the DJs on there, I can't remember his real name, forgive me, but he was known, he was huge in New York in that area known as Human Newman. And he was on there, he was going by his real name on there, but he was Human Newman back from the day. And Permanent Vacation Radio on Sirius XM used to play all of that independent stuff. And then when they crossed over and became Radio Margaritaville, they went in with a plan that they, the plan was going to be, forgive me for nerding out on radio history, but Jimmy Buffett was the only guy on the station who gets to sound like Jimmy Buffett, which is why they stopped playing a lot of the originals. He's like, hey, that's me. That's my thing. If you want to be on the radio station, play something adjacent, but don't rip me off and then expect me to play your song because that's my jam. So that's why a lot of the independent music started to fade away. And some of it they can't ignore, um, you know, like John Frenzy and those guys who are down there in Florida and they're right in J.D. Spradlin's face all the time. But that's one of the reasons that they got away from that independent stuff because people were basically just straight up stealing Jimmy Buffett's persona. And he's like, if anybody's going to steal music, it's going to be me myself. So that was him on there. That's, that's, a lot of, that's a lot of the reason those independent people, including myself, were pushed out. But I do have one big hit song on that station. Every year around Christmas, they play my Coconut for Christmas song to death. And <laughs> I'm grateful for that. <laughs> they also play the only other one, other one of my originals, that California Sunshine song. They don't play it anymore, really. But I do, I, I do get reports that they play a song that I wrote about never having met Jimmy Buffett called Never Met the Man. They play that song like crazy too. So those two songs I get played. I, I think that uh, you stand a good chance of maybe getting some airplay off this this new record. So I appreciate that. My yeah, the new album, The Miles Between, is is it sounds amazing, and I think it's right in line with what they're looking for. I've submitted a couple of songs that I haven't really heard back yet, but um, there's a lot of other venues out there. There haven't been for years, but now they're starting to be really big. Um, you know, we got tr- Radio Trop Rock, Tiki Pod, all the all the the, the up and coming stations are blasting it like crazy, and I'm fine. I'm fine with that world. Yeah. So, um, going back to the late '90s, early 2000s, um, Trop Rock has always been kind of regional. It's it kind of definitely has its regional tribes. You know, Florida, Texas, Midwest. 
Um, and oh, yeah. you and Rob Mel and Jerry Gontang were out on the West Coast, almost in another world to a certain extent. From you know, Florida and Texas, there was a lot of crossover, but it seems like you guys were just you know, off in another land. So talk about on that an scene. island on an, on an island, yeah. Uh, talk about some of that, like the West Coast scene, uh, especially back in, in the 2000s when you were first getting into it. Um, uh, migration went into fence. You know, I know they're separate events, but uh, Fence of the West got started like 2005 or so. So just kind of talk about all that for folks who don't know. Yeah, well, you know, people talk about rap music all the time, East Coast versus West Coast rap and how there's actually differences and you don't really notice it until somebody points it out to you if you're just a casual listener. But there's a difference between Florida, Texas, and California trap rock. And then as you go north, it, it, it changes also, but there's less performers as you go north of like Dallas than there are south, but they're spread across the country. And if you look at it, it's what your idea of what tropical is. So if you're from Florida, Key West is the tropics and the Caribbean is off the coast of Florida. That's, that's tropics. When you're from the, the West coast in California, tropics is Mexico and Hawaii. That's what you're the, I mean, you can't get all the way over to the British Virgin islands from San Diego. When, why would you, when you've got Mexico right there and Hawaii is a three hour flight away. And then Texas has that weird blend of the two. So you get kind of that, that, that Mexican, feel uh with a lot of the rhythms and things along with the caribbean images and that's why jerry can't ever decide if he wants to sing about tequila or rum because those two (laughs) things clash right in texas so but one of the things i want to point out is when people talk about west coast trop rock one name that always gets left off the list and it's sad is a guy named gary seiler gary seiler was kind of ground zero. He was the Scott Nickerson of West Coast. And actually, before him was a guy named Tim Flannery. Do you know who Tim Flannery is? Why do I know? I know the name for some reason. It's going to kill you when I tell you who he is. He's not the guy Tim that's Flannery. the base coach for the Giants, is it? For the Padres. He played for the Padres, okay. and he was the third base coach for the Padres for years. But he's also a fantastic musician. And Tim Flannery caught on to this whole Buffett thing, and he grabs Gary Seiler and says, we're going to start a Jimmy Buffett tribute band in San Diego. And they started this band called Buffed Out, where it was Gary Seiler, Jerry Gontang, Tim Flannery, um, this woman named uh, Sharon, who was later in a band with Jerry called Coco Loco and stuff like that. And the four of them, there was a drummer. I don't know who the drummer was. I apologize. But the four of them were just the kings of San Diego. And they would play in places. And they would play straight-up Buffett sets, 10, 12 songs in a row. And places wow. would just be shoulder to shoulder. And so Gary was kind of ground zero on that. And, and as things got national, Gary never really – traveled nationally jerry started jerry gontang started going down to key west and things like that and getting across flannery never really traveled with the music because he had the baseball thing going so it was jerry gontang who came out of it and then rob mel also came out of it and i did so we're the ones who kind of ventured out of california but gary seiler was there from the very very beginning and it probably that movement probably wouldn't have happened at all if it wasn't if it wasn't for gary so, but in, in the early nineties, late to the whole of the nineties really is where it kind of built up. But that, 
you can, if you listen to it, now that I've said it, when you listen to the guys from the West Coast, that being Rob, Gary, Jerry, me, you can really hear a lot more Mexican references than Caribbean references, but it's all just as tropical. Right. Interesting. You're, you're, you and I have had that, that. Is it? Is it interesting? I hope it is. It is. You and I have had that, that, that bit of the conversation before about how Mexico to people in California is, you know, the Caribbean to people in Florida and, and maybe even Texas to a certain extent. So it's straight up jungle. I mean, you go down there, it's, it's, it's as Caribbean as any place you want to go. It's on the same, it's on the same uh, latitude and you're going to find the same conditions. It's just a different population, different food influence, different alcohol influence, but the vibe is very much the same. That picture on the wall behind you could just as easily be uh, Mexico as it is, you know, Tortola. Yeah, definitely. Or Grand Cayman. What is? Do, do you have any idea what that's a picture actually I of, or is it just a cool picture? It's just a cool picture. I don't have a clue. Because I was down in I was down in Cane Garden Bay one time, just dropping names around the globe. I was down in Cane Garden Bay one time, and there was a boat dock. We po- we parked uh, the we parked the boat. We moored the boat off of, and we kind of uh, scooted in, and it looked kind of just like that. It was pretty cool. For those of you who are at home wondering what the hell we're talking about, there's a uh, there's a very cool. Uh, picture it's, it's actually it's a picture it's not a painting over my shoulder that bob's talking about of some undisclosed location somewhere in the caribbean i'm going to assume it's you, you don't think they got that i was talking about a picture on your wall when i said that picture on the wall behind you they don't think you don't think i was able to paint it for the audience with words well enough that they knew i was talking about a picture on your wall <laughs> you had to All translate right. that yes Thanks, i had man. to take it out of out of uh legal ease and into plain you know. <laughs> I'm such a wordsmith. All right, keeping it rolling here. Uh, t- talk about the event some uh, that a lot of people from, especially east of Texas, may not be familiar with. You had migration. Fence to the West is still around. Um, and uh, now, now, Seattle. What was the event in Seattle called? Laid oh, back attack. Laid back attack. And that laid back attack was around for a long time. It just wasn't a big, a big nationally known event until just the last few years. But uh, talk talk about those events some. Well, one of the one of the problems that we had for a long time in bringing people out is that once you get out of Florida, prop rock musicians are not so close together. So it, it's a lot more expensive to bring people in um, than it is. You know, when you do Meeting of the Minds, three quarters of the people who play there are live within driving distance of the event. When I say driving distance, I don't mean, you know, putting on a hat with coffee holders and diapers and driving for three days. I'm talking about, you know, within a comfortable drive to the event. Whereas outside, once you get West of Austin, people live really, really far apart. And you've got to get a guy as maniacal as like Jim Hain who says eight hour drive. That's nothing. So he'll get in his minivan and drive for eight hours to play at somebody's, you know, garage door opening. But in, on the West coast, people a little bit further apart. So San Diego has a big, um, concentration of musicians. And that's where everybody tends to be between San Diego and Northern California, really nothing. So, uh, the San Diego parrot head club puts on an event every year where it's one guy after the bang, 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 bang all day. And that's a really cool event. It's out on this place called Mission Bay where the, the 
the thing that I find hilarious about it is they've got this gigantic stage and the musician stands on the stage and looks out over the bay and the ocean and the sailboats. Everybody else is sitting on the grass facing the band with their back to this beautiful background. So I get the best view in America from the stage. And that's why I play that for 50 bucks once every year. But um, so two guys, Jim Hill from the Los Angeles Parrothead Club and um, Peter Ferrelli from the Arizona Club were drinking tequila one night and they came up with an idea where they wanted to do a West Coast meeting of the minds. So they came up with Fins to the West What the concept was going to be a meeting of the minds level event that happened on the West Coast for people who had a hard time because it is insurmountably difficult to get to Key West for most people. So they wanted it to be a little bit easier and they put it together in this place, this Indian casino resort thing in Laughlin, Nevada that, that would host the event. And that went for a long, long time. And that popped up some other events. Uh, there were some smaller ones. Migration was a smaller one, but migration was really just for people in and around LA and Orange County, California to go to for the day. It really was never meant to be a, a national event, but Fins to the West was, and they grew it into it. It's been now 12, 13, 14, 15 years, something like that, that they've been doing that event. And that's just been amazing. So getting people there, you know, we've tried to do things like cruises out of California. Mike Nash tried to do one. I've tried to do one. But the reality is the cruises that go out of California, they're all the love boat cruise. If you remember the love boat, they would stop at Ensenada and Rosarito. So the funny thing about doing a cruise out of California is every place that they stop, is literally within driving distance from San Diego. So nobody wants to get on the boat and pay the fee. I, I literally tried to book a cruise one time. People asked me the, the the stops on the cruise, and people in San Diego be like, oh, cool, we'll meet you down there. And they were going to drive from San Diego to Ensenada, which is like a two-and-a-half-hour drive, and just meet the boat down there. I'm like, no, 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 we're going to do a cruise. I'm like, no, let's drive down and meet you down for the day for the party. So Because once you get south of Mexico, there's just nothing. Um, so that's the, that's the hard part about doing one of those things out of California. Mike Dash found that out the same thing too, because you can't cruise for five days out of San Diego. It's either got to be three days or it's got to be a two week cruise to Hawaii and back. So those, that's it. So that's why a lot of people tend to filter across. Gotcha. And you, have you played every fence of the West? You brought up a sore subject for me, John Burns. Oh. I've played, I've played all except for one. There was one year where they wanted to shake things up and change up the entertainment, and I didn't get to play. But to support my pals, I did attend the event, which uh, came resulted in one of the single most embarrassing moments of my entire music career. I was... I, I said I wanted to support. So they had a pool stage set up. They had a stage set up right, right next to the pool. And right in front of the stage was all the lounge chairs. So I said, I'm going to support my friends, these musicians here, because, uh, you know, I'm, I'm still here hanging out, having a great time. It's a great event. And I pulled up a lounge chair, but I've been drinking really, really late into the night, early into the morning. By the way, that's a parrot head thing. 3 a.m., do you call that late, late at night or early, early in the morning? Parrotheads call 3 a.m. late at night. So if you're drinking at 3 a.m., we were up late the night before. And I get out there, and it's like, cool. And it was like 11 a.m., and Latitude was playing by Tom Michelle Becker. And I had my, my thing out there, and I, I sat in the, the lounge chair, and I put the towel over my feet so I wouldn't get burned, and I was ready to go. And I went sound asleep in about 20 minutes. <laughs> and I, so I'm sitting 
right in front, front row of Tom Michelle Becker sound asleep for their entire set. People are putting hats on me and taking pictures and all <laughs> kinds of stuff. So while I have not played at every Fence to the West, I have attended every one of them. <laughs> wow, that's a pretty good story there. Next time I talk to Tom <laughs> and Michelle, I'm going to have to ask them about that one. <laughs> yeah, I hope they don't remember it. They have to remember it, dude. Bob Carr went asleep in the front row with people dressing him up. How could you forget that? I don't think they had any idea who I was at the time. They, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say that uh, they're, they're not gonna remember. That's my, that's my five dollar bet. All right, I'll take you up on that bet. <laughs> well, as we uh, expanding out from the West Coast, uh, I'd like to hear you talk some about maybe the first time or two that you you headed east, played played Texas or parts east from that. You know, uh, first first time you played an event in another part of the country. Just kind of talk about how you got made connections and got out to the rest of the country. I hadn't really thought about that in a long time. You know, I remember when Finns to the West was starting to become a little bit bigger and I, I wanted to get out and expand. People were talking about meeting the mines and I did, for me, meeting the mines always seemed like another world and I never kind of wanted to go because I figured nobody would know who I was. And then there was one year I said, you know what, I'm going to go. And it was Thursday morning that I decided I was going to go to Fins to the West. And it was happening that weekend, and I bought tickets. My wife and I went out there. And I said, I'm just going to go down there. And this was, it was 10-plus years ago, maybe more than that. And so it was before they had really tightened all the security. Like right now, musicians, even if you're there for like, if you're a nominee for the Trop Rock Music Awards and they have it at the Casa, you go there, you get a pass for during the show. And after the show, you got to go and you can't stay for the weekend. But back then, the the Santa Barbara Parrot Head Club was the security at the back gate and all that other stuff. So I rode my bike up there and they're like, hey, Bob, come on in because they knew me from the West Coast. They were just so excited to see me. Drove down there and people were like, hey, come play a few songs. And it was uh, after that that um, I had gotten, I had played there. And then the next year they actually invited me to play. So I got to play at Meeting in the Minds for a few years, which was cool. And from that, people started seeing me around in different parts of the country. I know the people in Chicago have just been tremendous, specifically Maison, specifically the Mueller's at the Port of Indecision have been just amazing. And that really brought me into that part of the country there. And then getting, you know, from there, it's more willing to go places. You know, when I started out traveling around, what I wanted to do was find places where they weren't normally going to get musicians and places I could get to in a day drive. And that was Salt Lake City, Utah. So Salt Lake City, Utah was like an 11-hour drive from my house. They had nothing up there for Parrothead Entertainment, but there was a lot of Parrotheads who lived up there. So I used to pack my car and drive up to Utah, and we'd fill places. It was crazy because they, they, they were to the point where their Parrothead Club was finding bands that they liked and telling them, if you learn these five Jimmy Buffett songs, we will pay you to play a three-hour event at our Parrothead Club. And it was like that. So going up there, I would play at a place called Lumpy's and Sugar House outside of Salt Lake City. And the place would be just jammed. And it was amazing. So getting up to the north, playing in Seattle and Northern California and Salt Lake City was really my first opportunity to get out of there. And once I started doing that, that's when things started kind of sweeping across nationally. It's really been house concerts. House concerts have been the the saving grace. House concerts are the best thing ever if you're a small touring independent musician and they are a 
really, really important right now in the time of COVID-19. So if you've never hosted a house concert, the next six months will be a great time to give it a try. So Sure would. Hey, y'all. This is Kitty Stedman from Drop Dead Dangerous. Thank you for listening to Trop Rock 101 podcast with Pirates and Poets. Pirates and Poets is a crucial platform for independent artists and writers, and they have been working tirelessly to make sure that we make it through this difficult time. Please show them your support by visiting piratesandpoets.net slash store or piratesandpoets.net slash donate. Cheers, y'all. So I want to talk about like you and the fact that you are, I don't want to call you the bad boy of trap rock, but you're probably the most outspoken person in the genre. Uh, to be clear, I was once voted the number one bad boy of trap rock by the, uh, by Callie, uh, Callie Carroll. And when they did, what was the name of their show? The Pirate Girls. They had a show on Beachfront oh, Radio I, I back when that. DJ Jeff, DJ Jeff owned that. So yes, I was once issued that very title. You know what? While we're talking about DJ Jeff, let's talk about DJ Jeff and uh, uh, Beachfront Radio because unfortunately he's not around to speak for himself on this podcast. So uh, I, I know you, you thought very highly of him. So, Let's let's talk about him and everything he did for musicians for a minute. He changed everything. What he did was created a legitimate radio style environment. And when I say radio style, it's because he wasn't on the FM dial. He was on the internet. But he treated it like a real FM radio station. And what he did that nobody else has done since is he had a, a, a midday live radio show where he would take calls and he would answer questions right off the bat. And he was doing it live just like FM radio stations do. There's a lot of stations. There's a lot of people now um, who have radio shows who do a, a show like that, but they still pre-record it and they play it at different times, things like that. But he was literally on the air live and you could count on him to be there. And that live element was connecting people and it made it feel like real radio because it was in real time. And he was getting tremendous, just tremendous listenership from that. And it created a feeling like there's a radio station for us. And out of that grew a lot of other stations. And they're all, I mean, he was on the internet. They're all on the internet. And that's fantastic because it can reach everywhere. But what he did, and he also was the first to, <laughs> I'm going to say this out loud. He was the first to have standards. He was the first to say no to some people who wanted their music played. And he went, yeah, it's just not good enough. And it was because of him that a lot of people went out and got producers and started mastering their songs like they should have been doing from the beginning. And it really, his institution of standards jumped the quality of music. And what ended up happening, for good or bad, is it really cut down the number of artists who were played on the station, independent artists, because there just weren't that many putting out quality produced records at the time. And then people started to, and then it started to backfill. And that's when he passed away. So he never really got to see the influx of, of high quality production that was pretty much his doing. Because they were before that, they you know internet radio stations would they would just say, oh, there's my buddy down the street, he's got a CD recorded in his garage, great, let's put it on, and people would like that person, and nobody seemed to care very much uh, because everybody liked everybody, and it was just fun. But he was able to take a, a radio 
radio owner, host, producer knowledge to it and say, nope, that is not good enough. I like you and I like your song, but the production is not good enough. I'm not putting it on. And it really made people step up their game and it, it changed everything. I had never thought about that, but you're, you're right in that that was the turning point uh, for, for radio in, in the genre. So, and uh, I, I think, you know, you look at guys like Eric Babin and, you know, Harry with Radio A1A and these other internet stations, they are all, even though I don't know that either one of them may have ever listened to Jeff because I don't know that they were, you know, really paying attention to what was going on then, but they all are all disciples of DJ Jeff. So, well, that's the way influences work. A lot of times people don't realize what they've been influenced by because the influence was so long ago and it's been several generations of people kind of pushing it along since then. So a lot of the things that people bring into it now, he started kind of from scratch and what people are able to jump into now, you know, Eric Babin got the benefit of, you know, Andy Forsythe took over Beachfront Radio and all that other stuff. But a lot of the music that has come this far that they're being presented, they didn't have to deal with that leading up to it. And so it's not as, as much of I'm being influenced by that person. The thing that you're, that you're able to do now, the tools that you're able to work with were created by somebody else, whether you knew it or not. Yes. And, you know, I just thought about this, uh, DJ Jeff was one of the first people to really get behind Southern Draw Band, um, and kind of. So we could we could probably attribute some of the um, how do I put this less trop rock, more country, uh, red dirt influence stuff to him as well. Uh, you know, I mean, it's kind of always been there. Hugo was in that vein, but but DJ Jeff was definitely a big supporter of Southern Draw, so he he kind of helped open that door for a lot of artists. Well, if you want to talk about that, you got to go one step further back. Again, I'm, I'm nerding out on history here. I'm starting to sound like Professor Jim Hain. That's, that's but, what this is called, Trap Rock 101. So. Southern Drawl Band was the direct result of the implosion of homemade wine. So there was a band called Homemade Wine with Ryan Sheely that was the first real country band to get – dropped into to, to trap rock. And I think, I think, uh, Krista, Krista winners, Cheeto was, she was a big proponent of homemade wine and Cheryl Gates. And they were a big proponent of that band. And when that band for whatever reason broke up, melted down, imploded, whatever you want to call it, there was a vacuum there that Southern drawl band stepped into and they took over that role. So, that's that's where Southern Draw Band got you know they don't they probably don't even know it well they they probably do by now I'm sure Mike Nash has heard yeah. enough about it but but the, the the homemade homemade wine came from this collaboration between Tall Paul and Sheely's and all that other stuff and so homemade wine was that that trop rock country connection they were the Charlie Daniels band of trop rock <laughs> and then they left, they broke up and they ended and, and Southern Drawl Band was kind of brought in to fill that role and Mike did it really, really well. So that's where all that kind of came from. So when he was a supporter of Southern Drawl Band, he was a supporter of Homemade Wine before that right? and that carried over. I, I forget about Homemade Wine. They, they, were, they were a star that burned really bright, but for not very long, it's, it's at least as far in the genre. I'm sure they were probably, you know, around Knoxville before we found out about them. But it seems like they were really yeah. only, they were only in our world for two or three years before they broke up. I think so. 
Well, that's one of those. That's one of those things where you've got to decide if you're going to be a full time band or if you're going to be a, a a good time band, because you really can't with with those guys. They just weren't playing enough to make all those guys forget about all the gigs that were paying more in the meantime to build it. And Mike was a Mike Nash was able to do that with Southern Draw Band at the beginning, but what happened was he was losing these guys to other side gigs. And he was, and Ryan Sheely was going, no, 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 we got a thing, we got a thing, we got a thing here, and we're going to build it. And like, yeah, but I just can't commit to driving out to St. Louis to do one show when I've got these three gigs over the weekend here in Knoxville that are going to pay me a thousand bucks. And it's, and when you can't keep a cohesive band together, it just gets really frustrating. Yes. So uh, I'm I'm thinking about for guys, get your opinion on this for guys like Jim Morris, like DJ Jeff, people who uh, who are no longer with us, uh, getting. Uh, getting two or three people who knew them very well together to record a podcast dedicated to that person. What do you think of that idea? Fantastic idea. I mean, anytime you can, anytime, you know, you've heard me nerding out all kinds of places over things. And anytime you can do a tribute to somebody who needs to get their due, Jim Morris never really got his due as popular as he was, you know, meeting of the minds never really acknowledged him as a musician. They meeting of the minds named the event theme after one of his songs one year and didn't hire him to play. That's how little respect the guy got for how big a star he was. You know, this is actually the, the this weekend is the four year anniversary of his death. He, he passed away um, on his flight on the way to laid back attack in Seattle. I was actually playing in Seattle. So he was supposed to play Saturday night and I was playing Friday night and he was coming in Friday to play Saturday. And so we heard about it on, we heard about him being taken off the plane to the hospital Friday night. So this is actually the four year anniversary of, of when Jim Morris passed away. So it's a, it's a pretty, I don't know when this is going to air, but when we're recording it is kind of what I'm talking about today is what July 14th. So, you know, doing a, doing a tribute to him. I know that down at the navigator, Sonny Jim likes to put together, um, tribute shows to Jim Morris' songs because there's just so many. And a lot of the musicians down there have been in and out of his bands and know his songs really well. So yeah, getting getting people together to talk about one subject like that is a cool idea. Yeah, I will have to uh, have to do that then down the road. So Yes, you do. All right, back to, back to the original question here. Uh, you are opinionated and outspoken and very well-spoken. Um, you don't How just, dare you? You don't just run your mouth talking crazy. When, when you have something to say, you say it, but you... You make sense with what you're saying. And I only you, talk when I'm right or I can convince somebody I am. <laughs> yes. So, but like you've kind of embraced that role. Um, it's, it's a role that a lot of people are hesitant to fill. Um, I mean, even, even when the year you won Entertainer of the Year in 2016, you went about that in a very different way than, than most people do who are up for that award. So just kind of want to hear you. Where does that reason come in? I, I'm sure some of that goes back to your background as a, as an attorney, but it's, it's way before that, actually, that it, it more, it more comes down to growing up in new England, growing up in Massachusetts, as opposed to being part of the Oshuck South, which is where a lot of the musicians come from. And I say it like that. It sounds disparaging and it probably is, but I don't mean it that way. I had a, had a cousin, my cousin, Danny Petratus grew up in New York and he got married in New York and, and Danny moved to Nashville with his, with his wife and he ended up being huge in the music business. He was he worked for the company that managed Garth Brooks, Brooks and Dunn, a lot of those people. He brought me to the see the CMAs. Danny and I were good friends. He's passed away now. But when Danny moved to Nashville, he, he told me a story. His, his wife got a job as a, uh, a waitress in a bar. 
in Nashville. And after a couple of weeks, she, she came home crying one day and he said, what's the problem? What's the problem, babe? And she says, they don't have sarcasm here. And it's like, everybody thought, everybody thought she was just so mean all the time. It's like, no, 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 I'm just busting balls. I'm just busting balls. And so what, what we get in new England and in, in there and the Northeast includes New York, obviously, is that you can say things that are pointing out negatives in people without thinking negative of them. And that's kind of the roast culture. And that's where it comes from in New England. So when I tell somebody they suck, it doesn't mean I don't like them. And so being brash and bold and going out on things, that's part of it. And then the other part of it is my own personal sense of humor that I love to take things that nobody gives a crap about and make it a federal case. The biggest thing that, and so what happened was, so part of it, I started to hear people complaining in California that, oh, the TRMAs, you have to be in Florida to win. You have to be in Florida to win. And I'm like, yeah, because they bothered to start. So the, the, Tom and Michelle Becker started the TRMAs. It was called the Margarita Mafia, then became the TRMAs. They started it from nothing to promote the genre. People think they just put together an award show just so Michelle Becker could win female vocalist of the year every year, which is absurd. Why you would bother going through all that to just Tom could give an award. It wouldn't make any difference, but they put together this whole thing and people are complaining about it who aren't active in it at all and aren't doing anything about it at all, but they're just complaining about it. So I said, here's what I'm going to do. I, I really respected the effort and time that they had put in Tom and Michelle and everybody in the whole board at the time for the TRMAs, I said, I'm going to make this thing a legitimate issue. And what I found out was at the time, they only had like 400 voting members at the time. It's, it's much, much bigger organization now. But at the time, people in California were getting so upset that a guy like Rob Mel didn't win song of the year for um, waiting for Jimmy or whatever. And there's literally 400 people in this organization. It's nothing. And so I treated it like there was hundreds of thousands of voting members like the Grammys. I made buttons. I made videos. And it was ridiculous. But part of it was to kind of draw attention to this this thing that I actually believed in. And part of it was I wanted a damn win because I was sick of Brent Burns winning the thing every year because he's <laughs> half dead. Going to see a Brent Burns show was like going to see a weekend at Bernie's three. I mean, they practically have him hung up like a marionette and this was 10 years ago. So it was either him, it was him and Sonny Jim go back and forth every year. And then one year, somehow Jimmy and the parrots, a cover band from New York of five guys, one entertainer of the year, which I still don't understand more power to them. All due respect They're not that anymore. Guys. I don't, I don't understand it. Yeah. I never understood. They abandoned the year for that category, but entertainer of the year is kind of a more singular thing. And that's not to say they're not amazing. They're amazing. And when I call them a cover band at the time, they were now they're, they've got original music and everything. And I'm talking about the time that they won. So I said, you know what? Forget this. I'm going for it. And I did. And what ended up happening was it drew all this attention and I ended up winning this award when I, when they were doing the category, here's how lacking in confidence I was at the time, despite all the bluster that when they, 
the, the category was announced, I had gone up and I had done a presentation of an award for fan of the year, Debbie Hess won fan of the year. And then after I did that, I actually left the backstage and I went out front to watch the show. I didn't want to stand back there because I knew I was going to lose. So when they announced my name, Mike Nash announced my name and I was standing out front. It took me forever to get up to the stage. And you were standing right next to me when they called your name. <laughs> That's right. I was standing next to you. So when after that, it kind of opened up the everybody's realization that you don't have to be in Florida, one of these 400 people to win. And then right after that, you saw the flood of your show wins an award, the detentions, Donnie Brewer, all these Corey, uh, Corey Young, all these people from different places started becoming part of the conversation of winning awards. And it became really more of a national thing. So it kind of had the effect that I wanted it to. And I got a cool award out of it. Yes, you did. And that was, you know, two things I want to say about that. And, and, this is colored by my role as a, uh, I, I'm a member of the TRMA board now. Um, but Tom and Michelle Becker put a world of effort into building that. And uh, I, I truly believe it hurt their career as musicians. All the t- even though they won some awards, they went like eight years without putting out a record because they spent so much time building that to help out other artists. Um, and it was a no win for them because if either if they were to win duo of the year or they were to win individual categories, people would just say, well, of course, you're the ones putting on the awards. But you know, one of the things to their credit that they did was they included – they tried to mirror the Grammys as much as they could in the categories, but unfortunately – at the time they started those awards, they were the only duo out there who was doing original music that qualified, and they included it, I guess, expecting that they were going to be lacking in competition, but not because they wanted awards, but because they wanted it to be in for the beginning. Michelle Becker, you know, because Michelle Becker won all those awards at the first few versions of the thing, now we have Heather Vidal. Now we have... Coley. Now we have all of these people who are, you know, Danny Hoy, all of these people who are female singers coming along. Uh, and we've got the new, the new wave of Erica Sunshine Lee and is Isabella Stefania, uh, Robin Tricker, who's on my album. We, we see this new burst of female vocals in trop rock because they kept that category in there despite the criticism. And I, I think she deserves a world of uh, credit for that. Yes. We are in agreement about that. Uh, can, going back to you know the fact that you like to stir the pot, you made two Facebook posts recently that I was I was like, damn, he just nailed it. The two posts were one, stop supporting musicians, which sounds outrageous <laughs> when you read it, and the other one is basically don't hang up your merch behind you during your live stream, and they both <laughs> sound outrageous when you first read them, but they are totally on the spot when you actually sit down and think about it. So, yeah. So the, uh, and, and I'll, I'll name names. It was, I was actually watching and, and here's the thing. I, I can name the name because I was watching the, the video. I was watching Erica sunshine Lee, who's fantastic and she's great. And she's got good songs and she's fun to watch, which is why I was watching her, her, her show. But, she was sitting on like her bed and all over the place. It was like, she was in one of those beach shops. You go down to like, you know, the Kima boardwalk and they sell suntan <laughs> lotion and towels and, you know, bowling balls and anything. It's like going to a, a bodega in New York city and anything you want. It's like, Oh, you know what I could really use is a, I could use a, a bottle of copper tone, a beach towel, a Frisbee and a 3d printer. The guy's like, no problem. I got all those things right over here. And so, 
and it was hard for me to focus on what she was singing because I was looking at all the t-shirt designs in the back behind her. And it kind of prompted me to say, Hey, look, you, you do your song and then hold it up and you go, Hey, you know, there it is. And which it, it, it really helps. There was a story that my wife always told me she went to see Hank Jr. One time. And at the end of the show, Hank Jr. <laughs> finished the show and he walks out to the front of the stage and he's holding up t-shirts and making change for people and stuff <laughs> like that. You're like, wasn't I just applauding you? And now you're the shirt guy. So uh, it, that hurts. And then the other one stop supporting musicians was, more the definition of trying to get people out of the mentality that liking a musician, talking about them, paying for their material, paying for the CDs, paying for t-shirts, tipping isn't charity. And that's the part that people tend to, when you hear, when musicians beg for support is how it sounds. It always sounds like I'm standing on the street corner busking. So thank you for supporting my music. No, if you like it, I'll buy it. If I don't like it, I won't buy it. I'm not just giving you $10 because you look sad. I'm giving you $10 because I want you to keep doing what you're doing because you're doing it well. And if you're not good, people tend not to support it so much and it, then it becomes charity. So I, I want people to get out of the idea of thinking that they're doing a favor to the musician by buying their CD. You, you like it or don't. That's the thing. That's how products work. And that's, that's the mentality. I was like, because that mentality of charity that musicians will do, if you go to a party and there's a bunch of musicians there, they'll pull out a guitar and they'll play. They'll do it for free because they like it. But there's a difference between pulling out a guitar at a party and playing six drunken songs and putting on an actual professional show that looks and sounds great. And that difference gets lost. It gets blurry. So that was what that was all about. Well, like I said, I, I you know, when I first read, you know, the first sentence or two of those posts, I thought, here goes Bob. But then when you start reading them, you're like, damn, he, <laughs> he's totally right. And he nailed it. So it's a, uh, it's interesting, and I think sometimes you can um, say things and stir the pot a little bit because you're not depending on the music work to feed your family, you know, that maybe some other people can think, but they're a little more afraid to put out there because it is the only way they make money. So, I've heard that, and I've, I've gotten that from musicians for years. I did for a long time. I've been that guy. You know, I've, I, I worked... I don't know, 10, 15 years where music was my only source of income. So I've been there. Um, and then I got to a point where I realized that at a certain age, I'm just not going to make it. Nobody's looking to break a 50-year-old singer-songwriter's debut album. It's just not going to happen. So at some point, you've got to realize that your dream is now become your job. And it, it, it's at that point that I decided to to bail and go the other way. But I'll be, when I, I'm a lawyer now, but all through law school, I was playing guitar three, four, five nights a week to make ends meet. That was my living. So while I was going to school, I could have been going to school for refrigerator repair or whatever, but that was my living. And I did it for a long, long time. So to say, I don't know what that's about is ridiculous. I've been there, been there, done that, bought the t-shirt and hat um, to quote Kenny Chesney. But <laughs> so I, I know what that means. And I know I've seen people do it very, very well. And I've seen people do it very, very badly. And I want all people to do it very well. So when I make my statements, I'm like, I'm coming from a place where I, I've done it. And I know what you're talking about. And I felt your pain. So that's where that comes from. Speaking of, uh, of you know, playing three, four, five nights a week and going to law school and everything, you are a very busy uh busy person you have a full-time law practice you write songs you play shows you have family two kids uh 
and you're oh, involved, that's right. Yeah, and you're involved in your community. How do you balance all of it? And and you know, you put out albums on a pretty about every three years or so. You put out a record. So, uh, how do you get all that done? When do you sleep? Yeah, yeah. Well, I drink a lot, and that helps me sleep. <laughs> the the, the uh, it's the irony of it is. I'm not trying to find time doing all of those things is the balance. You'd be surprised actually how many lawyers are musicians and have bands. I, I know of three in my neighborhood here, my, my local community that have full on bands and have for years. There was one guy I, met, I went to talk to about a case. I had a client who needed a criminal attorney he was facing two felony charges. And when I sat in this guy's office and we talked about the case, he goes, Oh, before you go here, and he handed me his new CD that he had just <laughs> released with his band. And I mean, you go back to uh, the show, How I Met Your Mother. Marshall Erickson is in an all lawyer band, a funk band called The Funk, The Whole Funk and Nothing But The Funk. And they made a joke about it, but it really happens a lot. And the reason is because if you don't have that, you die. And for most of us who have morphed into the day job being more than the, the music job, all of us came from a place where music was it in the beginning and you can't just stop it. You can't turn that off. So, you know, it's always going to be there for me. Um, songs, songs happen. I've been writing songs for so long. The songs still just happen. I don't, I don't do like Brent Burns sits down every day in his writing chair with a notepad and goes, I'm writing songs. And he writes songs for however many hours um, until his nap in the morning. But for me, it's, you know, I'll be sitting there and I'll hear something and I'll just do it. I'll sit there and I'll strum the guitar and songs just still happen. And once in a while, they're good enough that I want to put out something. And this album was, was actually Donnie Brewer's idea. We were talking at Fins to the West a couple of years ago and I told him I'd written some songs. And he said that he wanted to start to getting into more producing because he's thinking of his end game as well. You know, he's getting too old to be driving around the country in an RV playing three, four nights a week till one o'clock in the morning. So what can you do that's in the music business that takes some of that stress off? Production. People come to you and you still get to be creative. So he said, let's do it because he knew that my songs would match with his production style and he was exactly right. So, um, that's it. I don't know if I'm going to do another. Every time I do one, I say I'm never going to do another one. And my wife goes, yeah, thank God. And then I end up doing another one. She went, you said you weren't going to do another one. Um, well, let's, let's then talk I buy about her the a Jeep record. or something. The new record, uh, The Miles Between. The Miles Between. That's exactly right. I uh, called it The Miles Between because it's just it's, – it's, it's about the whole thing that's happened for the last, I don't know, 30 years. So June 4th of this year was the 30 year anniversary of the first show I ever played. So it was June 4th, 1990, the first time I ever played uh, professionally. So yeah, it's been a long, it's been a long, long road. And so when I did this one, one of the things that drives me insane in music is when musicians get older, they start to become more statesman like, and they want to make more of a, of a, 
an important record. Well, the, the one that always drives me insane is John Bon Jovi. He is so self-important now. Dude, you were singing Living on a Prayer. There's pictures of you in, in you know, holding a bottle of Jack Daniel with four girls with teased hair that you pulled from the back of the stage, and now you want to buy a football team and pretend that you're one of the elites. Come on, dude, get over it. And So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take all of the Bon Jovi hits, and I'm going to rearrange them for acoustic guitar and minor key and make them really, really important. And it drives me insane that when musicians get older, they do that. They lose the thing that made them popular in the first place. And so when John Bon Jovi puts out 14 albums and people go, what's your favorite Bon Jovi album? They go, I really like that first one. He wants to tear his own head off. He's like, I've been recording albums for 30 years and now you like the first one? Are you kidding me? But there's a reason for that. Yep. And so I wanted to make a record that sounded as as strong and upbeat and fun as anything I've ever done. And what it turned out to be was I will, I will say that this record is the one I've been trying to make for 20 years. And there's a reason that people used to sign artists to a three or four record deal because they knew the first couple were going to be terrible. And you finally get your voice under you. You finally figure out how the studio works. You finally figure out how writing works. You finally get it right on your third or fourth album. And for me, it took nine, but I'm a slow learner. So we put it together and this, but all of the albums that I've ever wanted to make, I've wanted to sound like this. I don't know if it was because I wasn't writing good enough songs or I wasn't communicating with the producer. Or I wasn't a good enough guitar player. It took me time. But finally, it all kind of came together and, it, and Donnie was able to bring that out. Yeah, you mentioned this a few minutes ago. I think the uh, the marriage of of you and Donnie is probably – Donnie's probably the best producer in our community for you and vice versa. You're probably the best songwriter for Donnie to produce – given that you're both really coming from a rock and roll background. Um, there's not that many guys in the community in the genre, I think, who are really coming from that, you know, rock, true rock and roll background. Uh, but you guys. Oh, yeah. Know, so. Um, well, one of the things that I've been saying for years, that people, the thing that people get wrong about trop rock is they focus on trop and not the rock. Everybody who comes into the genre, they buy a Hawaiian shirt, cash in their 401k and buy a used guitar, and they try to recreate Margaritaville. Oh, here's a song with flip-flops and palm trees and margaritas and all that other ad-lib garbage. Uh, Mad libs is what I meant to say, not ad-libs. But it, it's, it, it drives me insane because the reason Jimmy Buffett is popular is the song Fins. That's the thing. I mean, he had Come Monday was a big hit for him and Margaritaville was a big hit for him. But those two songs aren't what made him Jimmy Buffett who he is today. It was the live shows. Um, you know, You Had to Be There by Jimmy Buffett live albums, one of the greatest live albums of all time. And it's not because of Margaritaville or Come Monday. It's because of the and it's that thing that gets everybody going. So that's the part that I've always found the most fun. And so I think people should, Cheeseburger in Paradise and Fins are the songs that people should be trying to write in Trop Rock, not Margaritaville and Come Monday. And so I stay on that end of things. And I think Donnie agrees. Well, he doesn't agree, but he understands where I'm coming from. And he was able to translate that to, uh, to plastic. Yeah. Well, and I, but I think some of that comes from, like Donnie's a he's, you know, what he played growing up when he listened to was much more rock and roll than probably what Jerry or Sunny Jim listened to. Same way with you, Boston. You know, I know you talk about Aerosmith, yeah, the Cars, you know. Jay Giles can't, Jay Giles band, yeah, it was rock yeah. and roll. When I was coming up in Boston at that time, it was, 
it was hard rock and roll. I mean, I, I came up in that era of, like, I graduated from high school in 1985. 1984 was Van Halen's 1984. I mean, you want to center everything around when that album came out, Jump and Hot for Teacher and Panama. That was the kind of music that was coming out when I was in high school. So that's where my musical kind of uh, baseline came from. And I just started adding things on top of it. So when I got to the point where I was hearing Jimmy Buffett music, I was stuffing that down in on top of that stuff that was my baseline. So I got that Jimmy Buffett rock and roll and the stuff that sounded more like what I was familiar with and liked and grew up on. That's the part that I connected with in his music. So for the people who, uh, and I know a lot of people have done a song with Donnie through the Winnebago tapes and, and you know, all the collaborations he does, but you're the first person to do a whole record mm-hmm. with Donnie and with someone with, 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 you know, I guess veto power is the best way to put it. Um, so <laughs> walk everybody through that process of making a record with Donnie Brewer. One of the things that people in our genre don't understand is the role of a producer and that's a budget issue. You know, you have a band, you have your vision and, and a lot of people consider a producer to be someone who knows how to work a studio. They basically consider them to be a recording engineer. We're going to do what we do, capture it, mix it down and make it sound really good. But what a producer really does, what a producer supposed to do at least is tell you, you know what? Instead, why don't you move the bridge to after the solo or move it to before the solo or repeat this line a second time for timing, or I'm going to add a saxophone in here. Well, we don't have a saxophone in our band. Yeah, but the song needs one, or I think this song should be upbeat when you've got it as as a shuffle or you've got it as a ballad or something like that. The producer is hearing things in your songs and trying to basically squeeze the most juice out of them that they can. They're not just there to record it because musicians are so close to it. And I picked Donnie because I knew that that he would have my best interest in mind with the songs. So I basically recorded all of my songs on just vocal and acoustic guitar. And then he said, I need five more songs. And I said, but their album's only going to have X amount. He goes, yeah, but I don't have enough for an album here. And I was like, what? What are you talking about? I've, I've written all these great songs. Like normally what I do is I write enough songs for an album and I release an album. He goes, yeah, but what we want is we want to record all of these songs and then pick the best ones instead of just working with the ones we got. So like I keep using Bon Jovi as a reference. Bon Jovi, when they record an album, they'll record 25, 30 songs and they'll release an album with, with 12 on it because they take the best of the best of the best of the songs that they do. They like all of their songs, but there's best. So he made me go back, and this is something that I wouldn't have done otherwise. He made me go back and write a bunch of songs in addition to the ones I had submitted, and we used a a bunch of those as well. And so I sent those to him, and he said, great, I'm going to build the tracks. And he built the tracks out based on those songs, and I came in and laid the vocals and and talked about arrangements and and adding different instruments and speeds and things like that. But that was his country. He took these songs – and built them into what they are. So I, I gave him vocal and melody and, you know, kind of the chord changes. And he was able to take that and squeeze all the juice out of it and, and add everything. Then he blinged it up. He hat lady blinged it. <laughs> hat lady blinged it. Well, it's a, it's a great album. Um, I, I think in my opinion, it's probably front runner for album of the year. Uh, maybe Thank you. You'll, maybe you'll end up with another trophy. Uh, I hope so. I, I know Alan, the taxi man has kind of been, 
for, I guess the lead single is the best way to describe it. Um, it was the first one, that's for sure. Yeah, but Trinity's the one that's really caught my ear. I don't know why, but so talk about that song a little bit. Trinity reminded so that song has an interesting history to it. Well, interesting to me, might not be interesting to anybody else, but so I wrote that song. I was sitting at the Blue Heaven in Key West having breakfast, as so many of us have been sitting in that same situation. And I was, I looked down in the middle of my breakfast and I realized sitting in front of me on the table, there was a glass of water, cup of coffee, and a Bloody Berry. And I thought to myself, wow, that's the Holy Trinity of Key West right there. And then I immediately asked somebody to borrow a napkin and a pen and I started writing, <laughs> writing that down. And so originally it was going to be a song about that. It was going to be a drinking song about Key West breakfast and, and that kind of thing. And I went down to do a show in Mexico with Mike Nash and, and Mark Mulligan. And I ran that by Mike. And what was hilarious is Mike was seven sheets to the wind. He was blaster runered. And when I ran it by him and he says, what if Trinity's a girl? And then he passed out. And so I didn't have to give him a writing credit because he doesn't remember any of it, which was fantastic. But so what I did was I, I went back and thought about the song a little bit. And I said, okay, what if there's a girl who is represented by all of those? She, she has all of those elements in her, um, all the different parts. And so the song really starts at B.O.'s Fish House, Fish Shack in Key West, and travels down through uh, through the square, down Duval, all the way to the pier out by uh, Louis's backyard. And that's kind of where the song travels from. And I wrote it about, I made Trinity was the name of a girl. And she works at, at the fish house, but she likes to sing. The guy falls in love with her and all that other kind of stuff. And then at the end of the song, Donnie said, wouldn't it be cool if we had a girl you actually get to meet Trinity. And so he called up Robin Tricker and Robin Tricker came, comes on at the end of the song and just hear her going, la, da, 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 da. and she's, she's doing the thing that I'm describing through the whole song with a little ukulele on it. And it just completely elevated it to a different level. Cause you don't expect her to, to drop in at the end of the song. And it's like, Hey, there she is. There's Trinity. So that, that song, and we got a little reggae thing going with it, which has got that Island feel. So it all kind of came together. I really like that track. I was going to ask you who that was. I, I figured it was Robin, but I did not know for sure. So now I know also on the bridge in that song, what kind of effects did Donnie use on your vocals? That was my idea. I, it's, it's called, yeah, it's called a phaser and it's, it, you can hear it a lot. It's mostly for guitars, but what I wanted it, I wanted it to sound like things were spinning in a circle, kind of psychedelic at the time. And so it's in when my daughter, when my daughter first heard it, I played it for her for the first time. I said, what do you think of that middle part? She goes, it sounds like you're underwater. I'm like, yeah, that's exactly it. She said, because it matches with, you know, it's just the water in your glass and it sounds like you're spinning in a circle. I wanted kind of a, a psychic, there was a band called Jellyfish that was kind of psychedelic and stuff, and I was thinking of that. We added that. It just it set it apart, and it really worked. So, yeah, it was really cool. So, uh, Bob Carwin, The Miles Between, it's available pretty much everywhere now, right? Yeah, at your local 7-Eleven. Um, if you pull over by the side of the road and you call AAA, there, every AAA tow truck is loaded with a stack of Miles Between CDs. Um, pretty much anywhere you go, if you give $5 to your local homeless guy, he will give you a CD. I've given them discounts. Dude, the, uh, the best place to get it, yeah. You've got the best place to get it for me. Yeah. Oh, it's fantastic. I, well, I, but I, I use the same guy that I use for my meth. I'm making this wonderful blue meth now that, um, uh, 
it's, you know, it's been off the market for a while, but I found a way to manufacture it. And I use the same guy to sell my CDs and it's the same method. So um, if you, if you buy what you actually, the problem is that what you get is a little plastic bag with a broken up CD in it. And it's not as, it's not as easy to listen to if you got to glue it back together. But uh, if you go to my website, you can get an unbroken one, bobcarwin.com. And what I did there was I set it up so that if you buy the CD from me, um, you can't, you will get a, uh, an email with a download code for all of the songs. So you can get the songs immediately or I'm doing it manually. So it's not set up as an automatic reply. It's uh, it's so when I see your email, I reply to it with the code. Sometimes it takes me an hour to get to my email, but um, yeah. So if you buy the CD, you get a download code immediately, or you can just buy the download code directly from me and get it directly off of uh, off of my website or, and, and it's, it's available everywhere you go to. It's on, you know, iTunes, Amazon prime, Spotify, wherever you go. There you go. Well, uh, I really enjoy it. I uh, suggest everyone check it out if you haven't already heard it. I know it's getting played all over Trap Rock Radio, all the stations. So uh, check it out. You ready to close this thing out with a few rapid-fire questions? Absolutely, my friend. All right. Oh, wait a minute. Let me, let me get my questions out. I, haven't, I, I prepared some questions for you, as you asked. Oh, oh wait. You okay. mean of me? Yes. Okay, I'm go ahead. I'm ready. I, I, one day I'm going to do that. I'm going to have somebody interview me just for the fun of it. You, know, yeah. <laughs> you should do yourself. You should interview yourself. Yeah, there's enough people who think I'm crazy as it is without that. So. <laughs> <laughs> What's your favorite Jimmy Buffett song? One Particular Harbor. Favorite cocktail? Uh, rum and Diet Coke or Painkiller, depending on the time of day. <laughs> if you could... Write a song or uh, record with anybody, any living artist. Who would it be? Peter Wolf, Jake Owls Band. I should have guessed that one. <laughs> Your favorite song by an independent trap rock artist? Hollow Man. Greatest hit. Possibly the most popular song in the history of trap rock. It's perfect. It it's is. perfect. And it drives Mike crazy that he can't write another one. But... Uh, <laughs> It's uh, and, and honestly, this is what that's one of the songs. It's a perfect storm because that that harmonica intro by Howie. If you listen, they re-recorded it on Wahidi Man, I think it was, mm -hmm. and it didn't have the same impact. And that's not to say Billy Payne's not a great producer, but they took out. You can't reproduce. They captured lightning in a bottle with that harmonica intro to it, and that sets up the whole song. And uh, it's the perfect storm. It is, but I, I do think if you were to poll and do a nationwide poll that it might be the most popular song in the history of the genre. That, and I also like, um, ah, oh, the name just escaped me. Wes Loper. Um, my, my favorite, favorite spot. spot. Yeah. That's a good one too. I was singing that one the other day, just walking around singing that one. <laughs> favorite beach. Uh, Joost Van Dyke. Bob Marley or Kenny Chesney. Oh, Kenny Chesney. You are the first person to answer with Kenny Chesney. I'm not, I've never been a big Reagan guy, but you know, I'll tell you, I'll tell you what, I'll take Jimmy Cliff over Bob Marley. Interesting. Harder they come, the, the harder they come, the harder they fall. Yeah. Uh, favorite Jimmy Buffett album. Whole album. Uh, let's say, let's say, uh, banana wind. Second straight person to answer that question with banana wind. That's. <laughs> 
who who said it first? Melanie. Last last episode was Melanie, and she uh, she had the same answer. So no kidding. Yep, that's cool to know. Yes, uh, a book that you think everybody should read and check out: A Confederacy of Dunces by John Kennedy Toole. Awesome. That's uh, my favorite book of all time. Read that before you come to Party Girl. <laughs> That's what it's about, man. It's about New Orleans. It's yeah. all about the quarter, man. All right. Here's the big question. If you were going to create a Mount Rushmore of Trap Rock, what four faces would you put on it? Well, four Bob Carwins would be a gigantic statue, so we probably don't want to go that way. The be So I'd, I'd – yeah, so the I'd probably go uh, be Jerry Diaz, Don Middlebrook would be on there, and I can explain why. Um, let's see, four. Who else would be up there? Sunny Jim, Sunny Jim, and uh, I can't put Sunny Jim on there twice. <laughs> and then I, I, I guess it'd have to be uh, Howard Livingston. Howard Livingston, Sonny Jim, Don Middlebrook, and Jerry Diaz. All right. You want to offer any explanation for any of those guys? Any? I'll tell you what. One thing that I've said about Don Middlebrook, and I've said this to him directly, is depending on how you define trop rock, it started out as people kind of impersonating Jimmy Buffett. It flowed out of people doing Jimmy Buffett tribute acts who started creating their own songs in that genre. Don Middlebrook, as far as my research will show, and Don is the first one to back me up on this, <laughs> will say uh, that his song, I Stole Jimmy Buffett's TV Guide, is the first song about Jimmy Buffett that I can find from at least an independent artist that people started realizing that Jimmy Buffett was a cult figure to be chased after. And so when he wrote, when he released, I stole Jimmy Buffett's TV guide, he wasn't trying to create a Jimmy Buffett song. He was referencing the cult of Jimmy Buffett and that effect on him. And that started a whole, all these songs that mention Jimmy Buffett, you can trace a lot of them all the way back to, I stole Jimmy Buffett's TV guide, which is way back in the beginning of all of it. So more than the people who were trying to create the next generation of Jimmy Buffett style songs, he was the one that was integral in creating the cult of Jimmy Buffett, whether he knew it at the time or not. Does he still travel around with that thing in a frame? Yes. <laughs> it's all he's got now. <laughs> he's got, he's got that Jimmy Buffett TV guy in the frame at his tiny, tiny goatee. Uh, <laughs> that goatee gets smaller and smaller every time I see him or his face gets bigger. I don't know. Oh, all right. If you could add one more person to that, a non-musician, somebody who, uh, you know, is a part of the community, but doesn't play or sing, who would it be? DJ Jeff. There you go. Well, Bob, I enjoyed it, man. Uh, you know, I got to hang out with you a couple months ago when you were in town recording the album, but it's always good to, talk to you and catch up and uh, look forward to seeing you. Uh, well, I'll see you in just a few weeks in Missouri, I think. Dude, we're going to be in person with other people live in Lake of the Ozarks. Yes. Get your meth buckets ready. We're going to go trick-or-treating for meth through the Lake <laughs> of the Ozarks. There's plenty down there. I've led to believe I've been watching this documentary called Ozark. It's fantastic. And uh, it's all about the downfall of Jason Bateman's career, how he started out as a really popular guy. And it's just, a, it's just an amazing documentary. Wow. 
that that went off the rails quickly. <laughs> Does Colleen know what you're going to be doing at her event? So. <laughs> I'll tell you what. One thing I'm looking forward to at uh, Trop Rock. Chop Rock Ozark Fest is Saturday night. We're doing a special cowboy show where we're doing all kinds of traditional cowboy songs. Um, Like they, they did the surf ballroom thing in Iowa a couple of years ago with Donnie doing the fifties thing. We're going to do a, we're going to do an outlaw country version of it Saturday night at Trop Rock and Ozark. I'm sticking around an extra day just to do that. Yeah. I'm going to miss that because I'm flying out Saturday afternoon. Damn it. If I'd known that, well, my daughter, my my daughter's birthday's the next day. I'm being a good dad, uh, getting home for the birthday. Uh, well, her her birthday doesn't start until uh, ten o'clock in the afternoon, ten o'clock in the morning. So <laughs> you get an early flight. Uh, well, all right, Bob. I appreciate it, man. And I'm looking forward to seeing you in a few weeks. Thanks for doing this. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks so much, JB. All right, thanks. <laughs>